Well, good morning. It is great to see y'all all here this morning, and those of you joining us online, thank you for being with us. We are in Acts 20 and 21 as we continue our study of the life of Paul, and as we get started, I want to hit you with a Bible trivia question. Now, some of you I know are real students of the Scriptures, so you'll probably get this. I want you to be able to impress the person next to you. So I'm going to give you five seconds after I ask the question. If you know the answer, say it to them, so at least you'll have bragging rights with one person. All right, so here we go. In Genesis 1, it says that when God had finished creating the earth, at the end of the six days of creation, God looked at all that he had created and said, behold, it is very good. But then in Genesis chapter 2, God looks at his creation and says, there's something that's not good. Does anyone know what it is? Some of you are speaking, so that's good. Genesis 2, Genesis 2, 18, in fact, gives you the answer. God says, it is not good that the man should be alone. Okay, raise your hand if you got it. Anybody? Wow, I'm impressed. Way to go. We got, a, we got a smart little congregation here. So, this is not a sermon about marriage. If you're one of our single adults and you're like, oh great, here we go. No, this is not about marriage. In fact, I would submit to you, Genesis 2.18 is not about marriage. Even though I know the, the way the story goes, after that, God put Adam to sleep and took one of his ribs and created the first woman and Adam and Eve had the first marriage. And, and I, trust me, I know the importance of marriage. I, I know the value and the beauty of marriage. But I also know 1 Corinthians 7 that tells us that there are some people who are called to a life of lifelong celibacy and singleness. Paul, Jesus, a couple of examples. Uh, You can live a long, fulfilling, happy, joyful life without being married. So Genesis 2.18 does not mean it it is wrong for anyone to go through life without being married. That's not what it's about. What What it's about is what it literally says. It is not good for us to be alone. Now think about who he's saying that to and about in the situation. He's talking about Adam. No human being has ever had a more perfect situation on earth than Adam did. He was in a literally perfect world. There were no problems. He had a face-to-face relationship with God the Father, something none of us has ever enjoyed to the extent that he has it. He had everything a man could want, and yet God said, it's still not enough. You need people. You need others to share life with. And that is still true today. Now, this is something I was not taught when I was growing up. When I was growing up in a little Baptist church, they did a great job of discipling me and telling me the truth of the gospel. They did a great job of telling me, in order to be saved, you don't need to go to a particular church. You don't need a particular pastor. Only Jesus saves. And so you need a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Accept him as your savior. That is all absolutely true. What they didn't tell me was in order to live out the Christian life in its fullness, it can't just be me and Jesus. It can't just be me and the Holy Spirit camped out, studying my Bible all by myself. I need other people to share life with. We see this when Jesus comes into the world. If there's ever been a human being who could have been absolutely self-contained and didn't need anyone, it would have been Jesus, God in human flesh. And yet, what does he do? One of the first things he does when he begins his public ministry is he chooses 12 men to be his closest friends, the 12 disciples. And we look at that and we say, well, yeah, he needed someone to carry on after him after he was gone, which is only part of the truth. Look at Mark 3.14. It says that he chose them. Why? So that they might be with him and go in and out and send them out to preach. Yes, that's part of it. But first, he needed people with him. And we see it on the night before his death. 
As Jesus got ready to face literal hell on earth, the hell you and I deserved, he was going to experience it as he drank the full cup of God's wrath, as he took upon himself the sins of the world. He didn't say to his disciples, okay, I need to go be alone with my father, just me and my dad to get ready for this. No, he said, Peter, James, John, you've been with me through so much. You know me better than anybody on earth. Come with me and watch and pray. Now, they didn't, they let him down. They fell asleep. They weren't with him to the end. But he yearned for that. If Jesus needed that, you and I need that. By the way, we don't just need it for those times of trial. We don't just need it when we're hurting. We need it when we think we're doing well and someone needs to come along and kick us in the rear end because we're headed in the wrong direction. We need it for those moments when we're happy and we need someone to rejoice alongside us. We need it because we need people to serve as examples and inspirations to us. We need each other. And we live in a time of profound loneliness. That's the ironic thing. We've never been more connected as human beings, but we've never been more isolated. Every day we go home, if you're a part of a family, you probably, same as in your house as it is in mine, every member of the family comes in, we eat supper together, and then we all go in our separate rooms and look at our separate screens. And I'm not against technology. I, I love the fact that when our church had to close its doors for a couple of months, we were able to stream our worship services live. And so people who, we were able to worship together in that sense. And there are still people uh, right now watching us online because they don't yet feel it's, it's safe for them to come back. I'm glad we're able to do that. There are people right now who, in fact, most people who visit our church for the first time, they've already watched us online first. In fact, just this morning after the first service, a lady came up to me and, and I met her for the first time. She said, you know, you look a lot taller on the screen. <laughs> True story. I love technology, but it's not a substitute for the real thing. It simply isn't. We need that face-to-face -face contact. We need that skin-on-skin. -skin. We need that personal, personal intimacy, that, that sense that we are running the race together. And we can, we can sweat together, we can weep together, we can rejoice together. And I'm not just saying that. That is straight from the Scriptures. Hebrews 10.24 says, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. A couple of things about that passage. Number one, isn't it interesting? 2,000 years ago, in the first century, the, basically the second generation after Jesus, people were already saying, Okay, I've got the Holy Spirit. I know I'm saved. Why do I need to go and gather with other believers. It's too much trouble. I don't like some of them. This guy has bad breath. She sings off key. He annoys me. Why don't I just stay home? They were already saying that 2,000 years ago. And the Bible's already saying, because you've got to be together. Second thing, notice why we need to be together. It doesn't say, come together so that you can hear a sermon. As much as I believe in the importance of biblical preaching, I know that any one of you, anytime you want, can pick up an iPhone and podcast a sermon from anywhere on earth, or you can watch television, or you can get online. You don't need to come here to hear preaching. He says, encourage one another. All the more as you see the day, the day of judgment, drawing near. He says, stir one another up to love and good deeds. That's something you can't do on your own. Yesterday, I watched my son run in a cross-country meet, and his teammates, they all ran as a unit. There were seven of them. 
And of course, they were spread out. Some are faster than others. But when one would finish, they would stay by the finish line and they would cheer the others on. I mean, that's part of it. You can't do that via Zoom. You can't do that online. You have to be in person to encourage one another. And that's true even of someone like Paul. Yes, Paul. A guy so courageous. They, they took him out and tried to stone him to death, dragged him, his limp and lifeless body out of the city. He got up and walked back into the city there in Lystra. Uh, a guy who, when in, in Ephesus, they're chanting and shouting and, and angry enough to tear him limb from limb. He wants to go into that arena and confront them, has to be physically restrained. This is a guy we look at and we think, this is a spiritual superhero. And yet when you read between the lines of the book of Acts, and when you read his letters, you see Paul was never alone. He always, always surrounded himself with people who were running the race alongside him. And he leaned on those people. Every one of Paul's letters, he, it's listed as, okay, this is a letter from Paul and Silas. This is a letter from Paul and Timothy. Letters from prison, he'll say, Luke says, hey, he's, here's, he's here with me. And, and Aristarchus is with me. And Demetrius, and they're all here. Paul was never alone. He surrounded himself with support. He was no superman. And neither are you and neither are we. The old English clergyman John Donne said, no man is an island entire of himself. We're all part of a continent. And when one crumbles, when one part of the continent crumbles, we're all the less for it. We need one another. So in Acts 19.21, after these events, it says, after Paul's three years in Ephesus, when so many great things happened, after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So what's going on is the Holy Spirit has said to Paul, you're doing a great job, but right now I need you to stop what you're doing and go back through all the churches you've planted and gather a collection, a financial contribution from those Gentile believers and take it to Jerusalem. That's why it says he resolved in the Spirit. The Spirit was leading him. Now, you might remember Paul and Barnabas had done this once before, but now Paul does it again. This time he has to visit lots of different churches. It's going to take him months to do it. Why would he do this? Why would he, why would he take a, a long break from planting churches, which was his passion and his calling, to essentially be an errand boy, a delivery guy? He did it because, number one, it's hard being a Jewish Christian in Jerusalem in the first century. You get treated like a member of a cult. If, you're, if you run a, a, a shop, nobody comes to shop at your place. If you are a, a blue-collar worker, nobody hires you to their company. It is hard. And so these, these Jewish Christians need financial support. Secondly, as he writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 8 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. He's talking about this collection. He's encouraging them to give generously because Jesus gave everything to you. And if you're really his follower, one way to show him that you've really chosen to follow him is by being generous. And then a third reason we see in Romans 15, 25 through 27. Romans, he's talking again about this collection. He says, at present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. You hear what he's saying? We wouldn't have salvation. The Gentiles wouldn't have salvation if the Jews hadn't given us their Messiah, Jesus, to be our Savior. 
And he's saying, the least we can do is say thank you by helping them out. When you read the letters of Paul, one thing becomes abundantly clear. Paul was very concerned with what we today call racial reconciliation. That wasn't a term back then. But he hated the idea that Jew and Gentile and, and, and black, white, brown, that we all were segmented in our own little categories and we stayed to ourselves. And he wanted, first of all, to see Jew and Gentile come together. Because he wanted the world to see a church that was multicolored and multi-ethnic and multilingual even and to say, how do you do this? We can't get this done outside the walls of the church. How come you're able to do it? And we'd be able to point to Jesus and say, he's the one who makes us one. And so his idea was, if I take up this collection and I show up at Jerusalem and these Jerusalem Christians who've always been a little suspicious of the Gentile believers, they get this unexpected, unasked for contribution, they're going to say, my goodness, these people love us. Maybe we should love them back, and it's going to bring the two people together. Now, we know some other things about how Paul felt. We know that he, what he was doing was going to be dangerous. The journey itself would be dangerous. In the ancient world, you just didn't carry a bunch of money around. If you did, you became a target, especially if you traveled by land, and part of this journey would have to be by land. Bandits would attack. You would get beaten, maybe even killed for what you had. So in chapter 20, verses 4 through 5, we see Paul choose seven other men to come along with him and Luke. A total of nine are on the journey. That way they can divide the money amongst themselves. No one person is carrying the bulk of the, the contribution and there's strength in numbers, but also there's accountability there. Paul's already been accused of things by enemies. He doesn't want to go to Jerusalem and give this contribution and then find out that somebody in, in Macedonia or somebody in Ephesus or somebody in Lystra says, hey, how do we know Paul actually made that contribution? We gave him all our money. How do we know he didn't go off and, and, and buy a Trans Am? And, you know, he's, he's having a midlife crisis. He's probably going to grow out a, you know, a ponytail and get an earring and drive his sports car around. Okay, Trans Am, y'all Google it, millennials. It's, it's a thing. So... Um, <laughs> so this way he could say, no, this guy from your own church came with us. He saw me give the money to the elders of the Jerusalem church. But most of all, we know that Paul was afraid. Paul knew that he was walking into a trap in Jerusalem. He knew two things. He knew that God had called him to go to Jerusalem. But he also knew that God was calling him into a dangerous situation. And by the way, you won't hear this from a lot of popular preachers today, but God does that sometimes. God does not always lead us beside the still waters in the green pastures. Sometimes he leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. Sometimes he says, I I'm leading you into the lion's mouth. I'm going to be with you, but you're going to need some courage because this is going to be dangerous. And that was the case for Paul. It's interesting when you read the letters of Paul, there's always a time in every one of his letters where he asks his readers to pray for him. And often it's amazing to read his prayer requests because they're very different from ours. Our prayer requests are always very, very now-centered and very us-centered. It's always like, okay, protect me, heal me, grant me uh, lots of money and, and provision. Paul's prayer requests are always kingdom-centered. I pray that I would have an open door. I pray that I would have the right words to say. I pray that I would have wisdom, courage, boldness. But there's one exception. One somewhat self-centered prayer is found in, first, in Romans 15, 31. He says, pray that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. 
and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. That I may be delivered. He knows. He knows there are unbelieving Jews that are just waiting to get him. And he goes to Jerusalem. They're going to have their chance. And he's saying, I don't want to die yet. I still have important work to do. Pray that I would be delivered. So they get on their journey. They, they start off by ship. They, they stop first in the town of Troas, Luke's hometown, where Paul is so excited to see the brethren gathered together, he literally preaches until midnight. Now listen, I don't want to hear any complaints about a 30 to 35 minute sermon. I have never preached until midnight in my life, all right? Paul preaches till midnight and something unusual happens. Verse 9 of chapter 20 says, And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up as dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak. And so departed, and they took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. Now, you're not going to believe me when I tell you this, but the name Eutychus in Greek literally means lucky. Pretty appropriate, isn't it? And I'd be willing to bet that Eutychus never fell asleep in church again. It's a really good way to stay awake when you die once and are miraculously raised. But what I want you to see about this story, and this is what I'm showing you. We're going to see a lot of these little stories as Paul travels to Jerusalem. Everywhere he stops, we see the fellowship between the believers. After Eutychus is raised, what happens? Let me tell you, if, if I'm at a meeting and a preacher talks till midnight, I'm going home and going to bed after cursing that preacher's name. I'm going home and going to bed. These people, it says, stayed up until dawn, just talking, just talking. They make another stop in the town of Miletus. Miletus is 30 miles from Ephesus. Ephesus is where Paul recently lived for three years. The longest he'd ever lived anywhere since he came to know Christ. He had a very fruitful three years there. So he sends word to the elders of the church in Ephesus. says, I'm only 30 miles away. It's just a day's journey. If you can get here in time, I'd love to see you. They come and Paul is able to spend some time with them. There's this long section where he says goodbye to them. Because he says... Listen, the Spirit has told me this is the last time we're going to see each other on earth. And I want you to notice uh, what he says next in verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own, soul, own, own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Do you hear what he's saying? I've seen this happen before, he says. You're a great church now, but the devil's going to try to infiltrate your congregation with false teaching. There's going to be some silver-tongued, smooth-talking person or persons, maybe even one of you, who's going to preach something that sort of sounds like the gospel, but it's a little off. It's going to add a little or subtract a little to make it sound a little better. And, and watch out for that. It's going to take you away from the truth. Now, just as a side note, but an important one. If you ever wonder why ministers seem to burn out so often, why far more often than you see in public education or the law or engineering or business or plumbing or carpentry or any other, uh, any other profession you can name, you see people who are devoted to ministry and all of a sudden they say, I'm done and walk away and never come back. Why does it happen? Is it because people who go into ministry are just more emotionally fragile? No. 
Is it because there's more stress in ministry? Is it because we work longer hours? I don't think so. I honestly think it's two factors. One that Paul didn't actually have to deal with, and that is family. If you ever want to hear the truth, sit down and talk to the spouse of or the children of a person who's in full-time ministry. And you will find out that it's a difficult life. That sometimes church is not a good place to be. Sometimes they're, they're thinking to themselves, you know, no one here likes me. No one's my friend. I would love to go somewhere else, but I can't because this is dad's church. It's hard being the family of a minister. And because your family's upset, because your family's having a hard time, it's hard on the minister. The second and the even bigger factor, though, is what I call the burden of shepherding. It's the idea, and I don't know that this is true in any other profession, where you feel spiritually responsible for the state of every person in your church. And Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 when he's giving his sort of resume and he's saying, I've been whipped seven times, five times, beaten with rods three times, stoned once, shipwrecked three times, in danger, in cold, in poverty, in hunger, on and on and on he goes. And then he says in verse 28, besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak? And I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin? And I do not inwardly burn. What he's saying is, as painful as it is to be almost stoned to death, as painful as it is to be beaten with the lash or to be thrown into icy cold waters or to have to spend a a night in the day in the open sea, it's just as painful when I find out that there's a group in one of my churches that is starting to preach false teaching. Or when I find out that a guy I used to trust is spreading lies about me in the church. Or when I find out that somebody I used to think was a mature believer is starting to split that congregation because they become selfish and prideful. That hurts. And you lose sleep at night. And I'm not, listen, I'm not speaking out of a position where I'm asking for any sympathy because the truth is, most pastors I know would give their left leg to have this church instead of their own. I've got a great church. Y'all treat me wonderfully. I am not complaining. I love y'all and I love my work, but I also love the ministers I serve alongside, and I'd love to keep them around as long as possible. And if you feel the same way, or even if you don't, just humor me. Treat their families well and love the Lord and put Jesus ahead of yourself. That's, that's what ministers need more than anything else. So he ends his time with the Ephesian elders in this way, verse 36. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. We don't think of Paul as being a weepy guy. And there he is weeping alongside these men that he loved. His last stop before Israel is in the city of Tyre, which is a city Paul's never had a chance to visit before. And so the believers there come out and he spends seven full days with them. At the end of those seven days, chapter 21, verse 5 and 6 says, when our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey and they all with wives and children accompanied us until we were outside the city and kneeling down on the beach, kneeling down on the beach. Can you picture it in your mind? 25, 30 people, men, women, and children, everybody getting their knees dirty and wet, and they don't even care. They're just there praying. We knelt on the beach, we prayed, and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home.
arrive finally in Israel, the port city of Caesarea. There's a man there named Philip the Evangelist who you will know if you are familiar with the book of Acts. He has four adult daughters who are all prophetesses for the Lord. And they are able to stay with Philip and his four daughters while they determine how they're going to get across Israel to Jerusalem for that two-day journey. While they're there, a man named Agabus shows up. Agabus is a well-known prophet in the church in those days. And he comes and he takes Paul's belt from him. And he wraps it around his own wrists and he says, see, this is what the Gentiles are going to do to you. Your fellow Jews are going to bind your hands and they're going to hand you over to the Gentiles and everybody's thinking the same thing. That's what they did to Jesus. And here's how they respond in verse 13. Then Paul, or when we heard this, we, note the we, Luke is part of this. We and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Now next week, we'll see the rest of the story. We'll see Paul get to Jerusalem and what he experiences there. But for now, let's talk about you and me. Because what does all this have to do with you and me? See, 10 years ago, the year 2010, I know a lot of you think that 2020 is a rough year. For me, 2010 was the hardest year so far. There was a series of things that happened, a series, some, some events, some things that had just been building, and I reached a point where, y'all know me by now, I'm an upbeat person, God has blessed me with a lot of joy, uh, people, insults and, and hardships and, and problems can just roll off me, no problem, but in 2010, I was absolutely empty, my joy was gone. I didn't enjoy anything. I felt worthless, and I didn't know where to turn. And the irony is, just a couple years before, we had been hosting a missionary couple who'd grown up in our church, and, and we'd gone out to lunch with them, and, and the, the wife in this couple had looked at me and said, so do you have any friends? And I said, oh, absolutely. There's tons of great guys in this church. And she said, yeah, but is there anybody in this church that you confide in, anybody who knows everything about you, including your weaknesses, anybody who can call you out on your baloney, anybody who can, who, who can weep alongside you. And I said, well, well, that's my wife. I mean, Carrie knows everything about me. She's still with me. and She's all the friend I'm ever going to need. I mean, this is, I don't need any other friends. And she said, yeah, but what about when she can't bear your burdens anymore? And now here it was a couple years later, and that's exactly what was happening because she was going through a tough time too. We were both struggling. We couldn't bear each other's burdens because we each had a burden to carry. And the irony is that I had all these men around me, great men in my church and outside my church that God had brought into my life that would have been to me exactly the same thing as those elders in Ephesus or the people in Tyre or the people in Caesarea. They would have wept with me. They would have prayed for me. They would have carried me along. But I hadn't invested in any of those relationships because I didn't think I needed to. And I got through that because I had invested in my relationship with God and, and He carried me through. Hallelujah. But it was a much harder time than it should have been. All along, I felt like God was saying, see, Jeff, you don't, it doesn't have to be this hard. You're supposed to invest in others, not just high and by and how was the game last night. See, God did not mean for us to, to live alone. 
God meant for us to live in communion with other believers. Paul uses the analogy of the body. When you smash your thumb with a hammer, your whole body hurts. You feel it from your head to your toe. Your mouth says things, doesn't it? You could cut off your thumb. That would be the end of that pain. But then you wouldn't have a thumb. You would have a harder time in life. And your thumb would die. That's the analogy Paul uses for the church. We need each other. We are bound together. So let me just say this very, very clearly. If you are still home and you haven't come back yet because you don't feel safe, do not feel pressured by anyone to come back sooner than you should. Listen to your doctor. Do what's best for your health. We want you to be safe. But this is not the new normal. This is not normal at all. This is out of the ordinary. And when it's time, we want you back. If, on the other hand, you're one of our church members who's just decided it's easier to stay home. I can just sit around in my underwear. That's great. But come back. Put on your clothes and come back. If you are a member of another church and you've started watching our church instead of going to your church, go back to your church. They need you. You need them. Be part of their family. If there's some reason why you can't go back there, we will gladly take you, but that's not how we want to grow. If you're part of our congregation, you come faithfully on Sunday mornings, but you haven't started attending a life group, start attending a life group. It's not just a Bible study. It's a group of people to share life with, and you need that. If you're part of a life group, but your relationships there are purely superficial, do something about that. Invest. Spend some time one-on-one with somebody who you trust. Get to know them. Make, them. make sure they know you. Invest in those relationships. If you don't do these things, you're not living a full Christian life. Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus died on the cross. Not just so you could go to heaven when you die, but so that you could be ushered into a new family right now that could help you live this life in a fruitful and productive manner. And if you're not investing in those relationships with other believers, you're like a person who hears that the best Mexican food restaurant ever is in town now, and you go and you eat chips and salsa and leave. And then you say to your friends, I didn't see what was the big deal about that. Well, you didn't eat the enchiladas. You didn't try the fajitas. You didn't try the tres leches. It's so good. You haven't experienced all of Jesus if you haven't experienced the life of the body of Christ, if you haven't invested in those relationships. And you might say to me, yeah, but Jeff, you don't know how busy I am. My kids are going 90 different directions and my boss has got me at work, pedal to the metal. You know, you and I tend to make time for the things that are important. And this is important. And you might say to me, but, but I have lots of friends. Yes, and I, and I hope you are friends with people who aren't believers. That is, that is part of the Christian life, establishing those relationships and using them uh, to, to show love to those who are lost. But you need friendships with people who are believers in Jesus. Well, yeah, but my friends are Christians. Do you ever talk about the life of Christ? Do you ever talk about what it means to follow Him? Do they know your specific sins and temptations so they can pray for you? Are they walking the Christian life with you? You need that kind of relationship in your life. Well, yeah, but Jeff, I'm an introvert. It's hard for me. I get that. I'm not one, but members of my family are. I know how hard it is, but you can do this. 
You know, it's worth, it's worth sitting down with a good counselor and saying, I have extreme social anxiety, but I know I need to make friends. What can I do? How can you help me? And you might say to me, well, but I've done this in the past. I tried making friends before and it backfired on me. I got burned. And I don't mean to minimize your pain because I know that happens. I wish it wouldn't. Churches shouldn't be that way, but it happens because we're sinners. But with all due respect and in love for you, if you go to a ball game and you get sunburned, if you go to a picnic and you get eaten up by fire ants, if you, if you uh, go to a parade and you get attacked by mosquitoes, you don't therefore declare, I am never going outside again. You take measures and you go back. And that's what I'm asking you to do. So what step do you need to take to invest in spiritual relationships with other believers? Do you need to make a phone call today? hey, let's get together for lunch. Do you need to sit down with a counselor? Do you need to stop by the welcome desk and say, okay, tell me about these life groups. Which one do you think I should visit first? It is worth the effort. You're not living the full Christian life. You're not experiencing the abundance, experiencing the abundance of Jesus if you're not doing this.